the reading that we did in class yesterday, uh, we went over the seven letters to the seven churches, and then John sees this door open in heaven, and he has a heavenly vision where he sees 24 elders and these four-faced living creatures, and they're all worshiping the Lord. But then the one that's on the throne, God himself, has a scroll in his hand. And there's this strong angel that cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll with its seven seals? And no one is. And John starts to what? Cry. Cry. Apparently it is very important to John that this scroll be opened. And uh, so he begins to weep, but then one of the elders looks at him and says, stop crying because there is one who's worthy to open this scroll. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the offspring of David. And then John looks, and what does he see? Yeah, a lamb that looks like what? Yeah, he was murdered. It looks like he's been slain. And all of the living creatures, all of the elders, everything in heaven, on earth, and under the earth start worshiping the lamb and celebrating that he's worthy to open the scroll. And so this lamb takes the scroll, and then you read last night about the opening of... uh, I don't know if you didn't read chapter 8 at all, so you've you've not seen anything about the seventh seal. You've only seen the first six. Um, Before we talk about the seals... And remember, these are not arc arc seals, right? These are these are stamp seals. Before we talk about those, um, we have said that for the purposes of this class, we are going to take an early date of Revelation, and we're going to take the historicist perspective. And there are a lot of people that would disagree with that. Um, and, and again, we just don't have time to do every way that every person reads Revelation. We're just going to kind of pick one and go with it. Uh, whether this is compelling to you or not, whether you eventually reject it or accept it, uh, you know, we're, we're going to look at Revelation through this lens from this perspective point. And so um, if we take the early date of Revelation and we see it from kind of this historicist vantage point, then what starts to emerge is that Revelation, written in the mid-60s, is looking forward to the 70 AD event with the destruction of Jerusalem. And that is what the book is primarily telling you about. So what I want to do at the beginning of class today is talk about um, the events sort of leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem from a historical perspective. And there are um, really three historical sources that tell us about the fall of Jerusalem. One is a history written by a fellow named Josephus. Is there another E? Josephus. How do you spell that? Josephus is an interesting person. Um, Yeah, it's just a U.S. Josephus writes a history of the Jewish people that really especially focuses on the Jewish-Roman war. Uh, Josephus is a Jew. He was a commander of the Jewish army, but then he kind of switched sides. So we'll talk about him in a minute and kind of put, like, where, where does he fit into this whole history? We learn a lot from Josephus' records. Josephus is typically held to be a reliable source, although there are some points where his bias very clearly comes through. There's also a couple of points where we just know he got things wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should totally discount everything that he says. Um, another source is from a Roman soldier named Tacitus. 
Tacitus was part of the Roman army. He, he's also a historian. And Tacitus was part of the Roman army that like saw Jerusalem fall. He was there when it happened. And Tacitus largely agrees with Josephus on the events, how they transpired, what took place, and when. The third source, which um, we usually use him quite a bit less, but his, his name is Suetonius. Um, my understanding is that Suetonius is a little bit later than these guys. He's a little bit further removed from these events. But he writes a biography on um, a, a fellow named Vespasian who was a commander of the Roman army and then later became the Roman emperor. So in Suetonius's biography of Vespasian, he talks about these events quite a bit. So um, I'm not going to cite sources today. Um, I'm not going to be like, and then Josephus said, and then Tacitus said. Uh, basically, what I'm going to do is give you a historical overview of, if you like, look at these three guys' writings and kind of put them together, what is the picture of the Jewish-Roman war that emerges? Um, this is kind of related, maybe, but who is Philo of Alexandria? I've heard of him whenever I hear the name Josephus. Philo is a, a Jewish person that is roughly contemporary with Jesus. He's dead by the time these things happen. Okay. Um, Philo, um, I, I, think, I think he lives a little bit before Jesus, but their lives maybe overlap a little bit. And Philo is really famous for um, allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, he's very influenced by Greek things, and early Christian writers um, tended to like Philo quite a bit because... Um, you know how we've gone through the Old Testament and we've said, well, this story is about Joshua, or it is about Moses, but in, in a spiritual sense, it's kind of about Jesus. It's kind of foreshadowing things about Jesus. Um, Philo gives some ammunition to that, even though like, he's not a Christian, he's a, he's a Jewish person. The way that he approaches scripture in general kind of helps early Christians do that. So, um, but yeah, he's not really... Um, He's not really a historian. He's, he's more of a scriptural interpreter. Um, but if you're thinking of, like, in Judaism, who are, like, two of the most important voices from the first century or, or just around the time of Jesus, Philo and Josephus would emerge there. So let's talk about the Jewish-Roman War. Um, the Jewish-Roman War um, is going to climax with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it's really going to start, the, the ball's going to start rolling in the year 66. The Jewish-Roman War is three and a half years. So think like halfway through the year 66 until 70, all right? That looks like it's four years, but if you're like at 66.5, basically, right? Um, so uh, about, about three full years and six months, 42 total months. Hmm, wonder if that number comes up in Revelation. Um, so in, um, in these historical accounts, it's a 42-month war. It's, it's, it's roughly three and a half years. And the beginning of the Jewish-Roman War, um, there is this fellow who becomes uh, sort of a ruler over Jerusalem whose name is Gessius Florus. And um, my um, church history students, we usually start the semester with, with this, um, Gessius Florus, the mnemonic that they always use to remember that guy is that he had, um, it's kind of, Gessius kind of sounds like Gassius, and, and Florus is flower. 
And so they, they would remember that he had farts that smelled like flowers. And I don't know why that helped them at all remember who this person was, but somehow it did. Um, so Gassius Florus, though, like basically his political policy is I hate Jews. Okay. And he's the person that's in charge of Jerusalem. So he starts really putting pressure on um, some of the uh, Christians in Jerusalem to like uh, offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor, or he'll be like, hey, you should sacrifice pigs or something. And what happens is that there winds up being a riot that breaks out against Gessius Florus in Jerusalem about halfway through the year 66. And the Romans squash it pretty quickly. Um, they actually line the streets going to Jerusalem with crucified zealots. But this really, of course, irritates the Jews. And so what they do is these different zealot forces, you guys remember talking about the zealots, hopefully, in the, in, in the Gospels. These different zealots come together, and they decide to do, like, the most idiotic thing that they could have possibly done. There is, um, not far from Jerusalem, a Roman fortress that is on top of a mountain. It's called Masada. And the Jews decide we're going to attack Masada. Um, so, uh, 66, what is starting the war? Um, uh, you could really call it persecution under um, Florus. And now it is kind of leading to um, uh, the, the Masada event. Um, Masada is on top of a mountain. Masada is very well garrisoned. It's very well fortified. Um, it's easier hard to attack something on top of a mountain. Hardly. Hard. It's easier hard to take a fortress. Hard. Somehow they do it. The, the Jews take it. So mid-66 um, is, is where we're looking at the beginning of the Jewish-Roman War. And... Um, the, uh, the war really starts because the Romans go, oh crap, the Jews just took one of our best fortresses. We didn't think they could do that. Well, what happens at that point is Nero is still emperor, and Nero is going to respond to the Masada event by sending an army that is going to start marching from Rome. And if you, I'm not going to draw Europe because you guys always laugh at me. Rome's in Italy, so they're going to start marching, and, and, and they're going to have to go around the Mediterranean and then start going south down to Jerusalem. So along the way, they pass through the region of Galilee, and they start taking one by one different cities in Galilee. So if you wanted just like a line, okay, you've got Rome here, all right, and then you have the Mediterranean. Jerusalem's over here, and this region here is Galilee. So instead of just going through the sea to Jerusalem, or instead of just making a straight line, they get to Galilee and they start kind of zigzagging and taking major cities on their way to Jerusalem. All right? And this is supposed to send a message, if you're Nero. And what's the message it's supposed to send? I think Jesus. Yeah, basically, right? And, and I'm not only going after Jerusalem, I'm going after everything. So... Um, after the Masada event, you have um, the, the Romans on the march. Um, and this is, by the way, like a super kind of surprising event. Uh, anybody ever heard of the Pax Romana before? The era of Roman peace. Like, basically, during this period of world history, and, and kind of for a couple of centuries at this point, there's just not been war. Why? 
yeah, the Romans are in charge of everything. Everyone else knows we can't beat the Romans. And so this is like this super abrupt break in the Pax Romana. It's very surprising. Like, who on, their, who on earth, who in their right mind would have made Rome mad? And all of a sudden, you have, for the first time in a very long time, not just like a little skirmish that the Romans are, Romans are pushing down. Like, you kind of have that up here. Like, you know, in the city, there breaks out a little bit of a riot, and then the Romans kill everyone. That's happened a few times. But you actually have Rome, like, compiling an army and saying, we're coming to conquer things. That's not happened in a very long time. So, as we're progressing here, um, the, the Jews in... Jerusalem, um, start to debate, what should we do? And you've got two camps. You've got one camp who says, there is no way we can beat Rome. And you know what we call that camp? Smart. You've got another group that says, oh man, no, we go and fight. We go and fight in faith. A very religious backing, Right. Yeah, they've got a much bigger army. They're much stronger than us, but hasn't the Lord given people into our hands before? So if we go fight the Romans in faith, this is where Rome falls. We took Masada. Who's to say we can't take it all down? Well, you've got this one group that is really fueled by religious steel. You've got this other group who is saying, there is no earthly way we beat the Roman army. This is going to make us lose everything. So what very interestingly happens as Rome is on the march is that you get in Jerusalem a Jewish civil war. Josephus writes about this quite a bit. Um, The Jews in these two different camps start fighting, and the group that's like, we're not going to fight Rome, is hoping that they can win and then make peace with Rome. And the group that's saying, no, we're going to fight Rome, is hoping that they can win and kind of put the heretics, the unfaithful to death, purify themselves, and then go fight Rome. But this winds up being a really bad thing um, for a few reasons. Number one is um, the, the zealous group wins. Yeah, the zealots win. Um, Josephus tells us that they cast um, their enemies' bodies to unclean animals, unclean wild animals. Which, you know, you can kind of feel that that's an extra, extra stab, sort of. What, what happens, though, is that the, most of the fighting, you know, it's really hard to have a battle that size inside of a city in narrow streets. So a lot of this fighting actually happens right outside of Jerusalem and in the surrounding countryside. But what do you usually use that land for? Yeah. So guess what it creates? Famine. It creates a famine. And guess what else it creates? Um, if, if there is a shortage of food, what does that do to money? It, massive inflation, right? Like, there's a shortage of food, so all of the food becomes more expensive. expensive. So this, this civil war creates a famine. It creates an economic crisis where the money in Jerusalem is, is, is basically worthless. Like, I mean, just you're, you're spending a fortune for any food whatsoever, um, and the other thing is, whenever people stop having the basic necessities of life, okay, so we don't have food, but now we also can't really spend our money on other things because we're trying to spend it all on food. Um, what happens to people whenever they don't have the basic necessities of life? They revolt and do. Okay. Revolt, but also 
You got a bunch of people, unsanitary living conditions, don't have the basic necessities of life. Disease. Huge plague outbreaks. So Jerusalem is already weakening. Okay. Before Rome even gets there. Rome keeps going through the countryside. So they start taking, um, Rome is taking Galilee. And um, during that time um, that, that it's taking Galilee, um, there are small little Jewish forces that are trying to prevent um, the Roman army. And, and you think that's going very well? No. no. So this is where we bring Josephus in. Josephus is a commander of one of those garrisons. Josephus goes out to fight against the Romans. His men get slaughtered, and he does what very, very many of the Jewish people do at that point. Um, Josephus and other leaders um, who are trying to escape Rome as they're on the march uh, will hide in really two two places. Uh, They'll hide in caves, or they'll hide in empty cisterns, and they'll try to avoid the Romans getting to them. Now, one of the things that the Jews do during this war that is a very, very dark thing is the Romans are uncircumcised. They're unclean. And so um, you might remember, like, Saul, uh, King Saul in the Old Testament. The Philistines stab him, and he's about to die. And he looks at his armor bearer and says, I don't want to die at the hands of an unclean Gentile. So what does he ask his armor bearer to do? To kill him. So one of the things that a lot of the Jewish, um, like the Jewish soldiers who they fight Rome, they lose, they'll, they'll run into caves. And what a lot of them do is commit mass suicide so they don't die at the hands of the Romans. What the Romans like to do is they like to make, instead of go in there and you've got like 15 Jews in there in close quarters feeling cornered, which means that they're going to fight really hard. Instead of going in there, what the Romans like to do, uh, guess what they like to do if they're in a cave? make it collapse just crush them and then we don't have to deal with them so um that's something that's happening a lot there's there's a lot of like mass suicide there's um cave collapses and and in the jewish mind both of these things are better than dying in open combat to to the romans because they're unclean they're uncircumcised well josephus is a coward he's scared of death and and the um The Romans recognize who Josephus is. They recognize that he is a very well-educated Jew, and he's very well-respected by the people in Jerusalem. So what what the Romans do is they give him a choice. Either you die, or you start working for us. And basically what they want to do is take him to Jerusalem, send him into the city, and and have Josephus kind of try to convince the people, like, hey, don't fight Rome. And maybe they'll be merciful to us. So this is where Josephus gets recruited as they're on the march uh, towards, towards Jerusalem. They're going through Galilee. Um, so... How do Romans just make caves collapse? I mean, that's really not super hard. Right? Like, I mean, if, you've, if, if, if you're hiding in a cave, you either, like, stuff it up with rocks or, I mean, there's a lot of Romans... Shake it, I don't know. But also remember, like, the Romans have, like, quite a bit of equipment, like battering rams, things like that. Like, they're taking cities down. They're breaking city walls. So you can stuff it up. One of the things that the Romans do whenever they get to Jerusalem is they try to make, like, these little hills so that they can climb over Jerusalem's wall. 
Like they have enough stuff to do something like that, right? So um, yeah, they like they like trying to collapse the caves to kill everybody inside. So not TNT. That's not been invented yet. That would have been cool. Yeah, I mean they they have ways of doing that. I mean you think about um, the the Romans used to have this thing that they did whenever an uh, emperor was going somewhere. They would go and they would like tear down mountains and make everything flat so that the emperor didn't have to like go up and down. So like massively displacing large amounts of dirt and rock is something that they are very good at. Remember all the roads that they built? So um, so eventually um, they will get to Jerusalem and they will besiege the city and eventually they'll destroy it. But this is where we're going to stop our history for right now. Okay? Um, let's go over the seals. And watch this. Just watch this. This is the history from Josephus, Tacitus, and Suetonius. And watch this. Now, when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, there was a what? White horse. A white horse. Um, the horse, the four horsemen that we're going to read about here are not unique to Revelation. They're also found in Zechariah. In Zechariah, they go and patrol the land, which is a reference to the Holy Land. And they then report back to God and tell it how sinful it has become. And God threatens another exile, another destruction of Jerusalem. So in Zechariah's vision, the four horsemen are uh, associated with the destruction of Jerusalem. Now they're showing up again. Remember, Zechariah is after the exile. He's after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem's fallen back into the same sins. And Zechariah gives the sermon of the four horsemen to say, God's done it once. He's not scared to do it again. And here we have them show up again, this time to John. So there's a white horse. Its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So uh, seal one is about a rider with a what on his head? crown and he's riding out to all right so uh it's, a, it's about a conqueror riding out to conquer things and he's wearing this crown uh horsemen are usually associated with what war, war. armies right cavalry yes is it important that he had a bow uh he's he's armed right you you get the idea that he's armed um, second seal, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Why is that significant? Yeah, we've had this era of Roman peace, peace throughout the entire earth. And this red, um, this red rider comes out and he takes peace away from the earth. That's the main thing that he does. He takes away the peace, which you could read that as a reference to taking away the Pax Romana. Um, so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third, and who's opening all the seals, by the way? The lamb. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. 
And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and don't harm the oil and wine. Now, a denarius is, you remember what a denarius is? It's a day's wage. So how much money would you hope to make in a, in a day? Huh? Yeah, but like today. something close to that, right? Um, Okay, you make $100 for a day's labor, and then all you can buy is not even a gallon of wheat, but a quart. You can buy three quarts of barley. And then you're being so frugal with the oil and wine that you're making sure you don't spill any of it, which means that there's not a lot. So the third rider brings what? Uh, brings yeah you can see he brings famine he brings economic scarcity okay next one up verse seven when he opened the fourth seal i heard a voice of a fourth living creature say come and i looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, disease, and by wild beasts of the earth. So death. And death by what? Famine and disease. Famine, disease. It also said sword, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number five. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of those who had been slain for the word of God. Um, about the um, verse 7, when it says um, the given authority over a fourth of the earth and by the wild beasts of the earth, are you interpreting that as the Israel? I think that every time Revelation says earth, it's a reference to the promised land. And the reason why is because in 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 Greek, you have two words. You have gay and then you have um cosmos 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 in john's writing seems to be a reference to the world the way that we think of it like global um the word gay whenever the hebrew bible was translated into greek the septuagint the word gay um we translated earth but it was used almost exclusively to talk about the promised land in the septuagint and so he uses both terms in Revelation. He uses this and, and cosmos. And it seems like if we're paying attention to how this term is typically used, it, it would almost be better translated the land, which in Bible usage is usually Canaan, right? And so a fourth, um, they're given authority over a fourth of the earth or a fourth of the land. Sounds like the encroachment through Galilee to me. Um, it's not complete yet. It's happening slowly. Um, but then the fifth seal is interesting. We break from it and we get a vision in heaven. When the lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are what? Martyrs. Martyrs. They're dead Christians. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this judgment that's happening is associated with the prayers of the martyrs. The people who are coming under judgment had killed Christians. And that is why they are now coming under judgment. God is avenging the blood of his people on those who had put them to death. And judgment is coming when in this text, by the way. John sees the fifth seal broken, and he hears their prayer, asking that their blood will be avenged, and um, they're told to rest, in verse 11, how long? A little longer. Notice how well that works with all of the soon language that we looked at in Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. All right, I'm coming soon. These are things that must soon take place. And here, these people are praying that their blood will be avenged on the people who have slain them. And they say, how long, O Lord? And he doesn't say, "Ah, a few millennium. He says, only a little longer. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake And the sun became as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. This is language that's taken from Joel and taken from Zephaniah, taken from Jeremiah as well. When, When Jerusalem fell the first time, there was all of this really big apocalyptic language that the prophets used. And it makes it sound like what is happening in this text. The sun goes, huh? Sounds like the world is ending. And the Old Testament prophets would use this sort of language whenever a nation fell. So like, for example, in the book of Isaiah, when Babylon falls, God says the stars will fall from heaven to earth. Now, did literal stars fall from heaven to earth when Babylon fell? How do you know that? There's still an earth. It's a way of... of in a sense, you ever said before um, something happens in your life and you say it feels like my world is ending now are you saying that it feels like the actual world is ending it feels like your little bubble is coming to a close though like everything's falling apart around you and so for the people that are coming under judgment here it feels like their world is ending because in a sense it kind of is In verse 14, the sky vanishes like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island is removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? What do they call on the mountains to do? Yeah, they call for the mountains to fall. So, the way that you could understand this, if you want to match it up, all right, Rome comes out and begins marching to conquer this this small nation that dares defy them. The Pax Romana is now ripped away. 
And more than that, not only is the Pax Romana ripped away, but the peace in Jerusalem is ripped away too as a what emerges? Civil war. After this peace is ripped away, you wind up with a famine. You wind up with economic scarcity. It talks about how whenever death comes, people are dying from famine, from disease, from the sword. Something else that's very interesting is that they're dying specifically from wild animals. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The reason for this is because of the martyrs who have died at the hands of this people. And whenever judgment begins to fall on these people, there's this very large apocalyptic language, but they start crying out that mountains would fall on them and hide them. It's preferable to die from you know, mountains falling on you than to die the way that, that, that the Lamb's judgment is, is coming. Um, at this point in history, who has persecuted the Christian church? Throughout the book of Acts, who persecutes the Christian church? people of Jerusalem. Jesus will tell parables, right? And he'll say, from the time of Abel to the time of Zechariah, Jerusalem is put to death every holy prophet. Right? Uh, Jesus is put to death by the people of Jerusalem. His first followers are put to death mainly by the synagogues. Uh, There's only under Nero, which is ramping up around this time, around this same time, only under Nero, though, has there been any persecution of Christians. And it's, and it's only like right as this is happening that any of that's happening. So um, it seems like these things match up fairly well with the Jewish-Roman war. The six seals seem to, seem to go along with what we see uh, from Josephus, Tacitus, and Suetonius. Great. Uh, I was just going to say in 14, like the, in every mountain and island was removed from its place, could that also... I know some people interpret it that way. I wonder if that's just kind of caught up with that apocalyptic, like your world is ending type language. It could be. Um, now, in the next chapter, um, there's a break before we get to the seventh seal. And there are some people in Jerusalem who are still faithful. How many? Yeah, there's 144,000. That's a very symbolic number, but they're still faithful. And um, their names are called out. They're sealed. There's a mark that's put on them, which we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Um, Where is the mark put on them? Where is the seal put on them? Only on their foreheads. We'll talk about the importance of that whenever we get into chapter 13, because that'll come up again. But basically, there, there are some Christians who are in Jerusalem, and as the Lamb's wrath is falling, he's, he's protecting and preserving those people. We'll talk about what that looks like a little bit later on. And then at the end of chapter 7, our boy John gets another heavenly vision. And listen to this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How many Christians in heaven? Yeah, innumerable amount. So, book of Revelation uh, seems optimistic or pessimistic about how many people are going to believe the gospel. Very optimistic. There's a multitude that no one can number. So, uh, we'll come back and talk about this 144,000 that are sealed. We're going to see that they sort of show up again a little bit later on. Well, they do show up again in, in chapter 14. And we want to talk about how they escape this judgment and how the Lamb takes care of them. Um, you guys will also talk about the seventh seal in Revelation 8 and um, how it introduces a new set of seven, seven, seven trumpets. Um, trumpets in the Old Testament are usually associated with what? Do you know? Yeah, it's war. Uh, they're, they're used primarily for war. So um, before Monday, let's have you guys read um, Revelation 8 through 11. And we're not going to be able to get into this passage, like these chapters quite as much as I would like to, just because we're going to have to move a little bit quicker, and I want to spend time on 12 through 14. Um, but read 8 through 11 and, and come back ready to, uh, to look at it a little bit.